I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L dot com. Recently retired from a multi-decade career with the NRCS, agronomist Barry Fisher has been a longtime booster of no-till. Based in his home state of Indiana, Fisher's efforts helped the state's no-till acres grow to the point where it was among the states with the highest percentage of no-till ground in the U.S. Fisher devoted much of his government career to encouraging the adoption of no-till and cover crops. Over the years, he's worked with thousands of farmers while conducting numerous field days and has tested a wide variety of no-till equipment options to demonstrate no-till best practices. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Fisher about his lengthy career and the changes in no-till equipment and strategies he's witnessed over the years. Join in as Fisher talks about why aerial seeding cover crops in ridge-till fields was successful, the equipment upgrades that made the biggest impact on no-till success, how learning to manage the microenvironment around the seed made a big difference for corn-on-corn systems, how no-tillers can adopt organic practices by getting the soil to function at a higher level, and much more. So did you grow up around Greencastle? No, I actually grew up at uh, in French Lick, Indiana, down the hills of southern Indiana. Yeah, and so, their home was a famous basketball player. Yeah, there was another good one, too. His name was Larry Bird. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to school, and then you went, where'd you go to college? Well, I went to Western Kentucky University. Most people assume I went to Purdue and had... had sure. Had it, had intentions of that, but but wound up uh, going down there to play baseball. And uh, once I got there, I I stayed and got in their ag program. Oh, so you are like Larry Bird. You are you are a jock, huh? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Right. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I was. <laughs> All right. What'd you graduate in? Interesting program. You had a degree in agriculture, but then they had a special emphasis, and my special emphasis was agronomy. So. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I just tell people I majored in agronomy, which was kind of the same as what it is everywhere else. Sure. Then what did you do when you got out of school? Well, I actually went right to work with the USDA, and at that time was the Soil Conservation Service. And uh, I had actually done a couple of summer interns with them, and that really impacted me to see some of the work that they were doing. And even back then, we're working on some no-till, had no-till plots, and saw how those were going as a summer trainee and uh, um, went back to college and actually it even changed my course 
design selection just a little bit. And uh, mm-hmm. so when I got out, I went right to work for Soil Conservation Service. Where where'd you start out? What town or city? Uh, went to Shelbyville for a short period, and then they immediately they had a what they had a special emphasis or a a target area they called it actually for no-till and cover crops back in 1983 and so I went to Richmond Indiana pretty quick there as one of those soil conservationists on that target team immediately started working on no-till and cover crops we had a cost share program we had uh, three no-till planters two no-till drills and a 40 acre test plots so there so well i i grew up in michigan and my dad was seeding cover crops in the 40s and 50s and then like many other people we got away from them so in 83 what cover crops were you promoting or seeding in those days cereal rye has always been you know the mainstay and so right. we, we did a lot of cereal rye we did some some wheat we had some Harry Vetch going out. That was kind of ridge till country up there. So sure. we actually were, were growing some Harry Vetch um, in continuous corn ridge till uh, on some of our plots, which was pretty interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we actually tried annual ryegrass back then, but we didn't know what we know today about selection of, you know, which cultivars work the best as a cover crop. So. Sure. Most of our annual ryegrass was the Gulf type and just froze out. But we tried several different ones, and uh, the the cereal rye was the predominant one. But so, how were you seeding on the uh, with ridge till in the ridges? It was mostly aerial seeding. Okay. We, we we were doing a lot more. I mean, that was we had two or three aerial pilots in the area, and uh, uh, so we were doing a lot of aerial seeding actually, mm-hmm. which with the ridge till was kind of kind of good it's almost like those ridges it deflected it and then most of it grew down in the bottoms you right. know bounce, <laughs> in, bounce, in between the, rows. the ridges yeah so what was the key to getting no-till and cover crops going in this targeted area back in the early 80s well we had of course cost share which back then it was you know you could sign up and get just i mean automatically get 40 acres of of cost share and we had we had all those demonstration planters where we could kind of make sure they were set right and we could try to get success on that 40 acres. Yeah. And, and I think that helped a lot. And honestly, what we really had was just a lot of technical support. You know, we had uh, two different technicians on that work team that no-tailed themselves. They were farmers themselves and they could, they could actually provide practical information. They had already at that time been no-tailing over 10 years. And we had a uh, soil and water conservation district um, board members that were also mostly no-till or ridge tillers. We just had a really solid technical staff. We, we, we learned back then really quick to work with the ag retail sector, both the equipment dealers and, and the, the crop protection folks. Sure. So right. getting them on board and, and, and making sure we were all kind of talking the same language and, uh, you know, weren't sending out mixed messages. That was that was really key. And so to this day, that area is really strong in no-till, strip-till, and ridge-till. I don't think they have much ridge-till anymore. Most of that went to strip-till. Right. So I take it this project was pretty successful after three or four years. Yeah, yeah, it, it worked pretty good. You know, you would get that 40-acre cost share for up to three years. 
mm-hmm. that kind of stayed with you and, and that you were getting technical assistance. We had a lot of really good workshops. You probably know the name Quentin Williamson. He could get 250 people to a field day. <laughs> They'd just be on the phone all summer long to every, every farmer in the county. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we had a lot of, you know, education events and, and stuff. It stayed with them. I mean, it, it, it was, they didn't just get their money and quit when the, when the money ran out. They, they mostly stayed with it. What was the biggest objection early on the no-till that you saw up there? Back then, and you know this, we tried, our biggest challenge was just getting a really good stand and, and getting weed control. The, our biggest, our biggest problem with, uh, you know, the cover crops became the the army worms because we didn't have, sure. you know, we didn't have BT crops. We didn't have some of the products that we have today. We had common stock borer, which today wouldn't even be an issue, you see. Yeah. But we, we, we fought with those a little bit. And uh, those were some of our biggest challenges, but just getting a stand. So we, we spent just a lot of time helping people set up planners and having that second set of eyes while you're driving the planner, you know, have, we would go out in the field and we just learned pretty quickly what quick tweaks could really help get sure. every seed in the ground. And, and we spent a lot of time on that. Yeah. Well, I, I pulled up a couple of articles we'd done with you earlier. And one of them, you're talking about planter workshops in the winter. And that was a key too. Oh yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of planter workshops and, and stuff back then. And the change in that planter technology has just been huge, you know, but back in the early days, you know, the only down pressure you had were springs, and <laughs> you had to set those. And, right. Uh, so. Well, it's, it's interesting because you go back uh, in no-till in the 70s and 80s, and no-till farmer, we used to run all these pictures of modified rigs or homemade rigs. And you don't mm-hmm. see those anymore because we finally made some progress in planters and drills. The guys didn't have to adapt them just to their own situation or even to no-till. Yeah, we've we've just we've just got planters now that that uh, take a lot of the guesswork out of you know, and <laughs> you can on sub inch increments uh, the computer's adjusting the down pressure for you based right, on exactly. the sensors of right. each individual row. My right. gosh. <laughs> right. You left Richmond and went to another uh, location? Well, I went close by. as I became a, a district. My first job as a district conservationist was the next county south, and, mm-hmm. and we had been working with that county, so I knew, the, I knew the folks down there. I knew a lot of the farmers. I'd been spending some time down there anyway, so they decided to put me down there as, as a district conservationist. And so kind of just continued the same thought process down there. We still had the cost share program going and immediately, you know, the first thing I did probably every place I went was once I saw how effective it was there at Richmond was immediately set up a, a demonstration area, you know, with, with test plots and, and, and so that people could see successful no-till because you had to see it. You know, it, That's just to this day, or even when we talk about soil health, explaining soil health to somebody is not the same as letting them see it right. uh, firsthand. And, right. and so some people say you can't beat getting people down in the soil pit so they actually see what's going on. Yeah, we, we started even back then with we tried to get a soil pit at every field day if at all possible. And we, we actually started pushing cover crops a little harder. I had an area conservationist. Uh, he was a, a German Kentuckian, Bill Reichenbach, mm-hmm. showed up with a big big cigar in his mouth and he says, Fisher, 
all you got to do is plant cover crops and everything else will take care of itself. I said that back in the, that was back in the early eighties. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, so I was under great pressure from my new boss to uh, get some cover crops out there. So we did, we did start doing a little more with cover crops back yeah. then. <laughs> well, Indiana kind of different in some states. It, it seems to me that extension and the university got on a no-till bandwagon pretty early in Indiana. And in some other states, it took them forever. Is that pretty much true in Indiana? Well, it is and it isn't. You know, a lot of people talk about extension like it's a thing. And what we had at Purdue was we had two or three people that were just really, we worked with them a lot. You know, Eileen Clodivko, yeah. you know, and, right. and and Jerry Mannering. And, yeah. you know, we, we had a lot of these guys. Dave Mingle was there helping us yeah. with fertility. We had people in different sectors that were really helpful in helping us. But then, you know, every every specialist is in their own little kind of silo a bit and, and doing their own work. And so right. it it was still even back then it was it was hard to get prevent that mixed messaging because, you know, the one specialist would be telling them one thing and the other specialist yeah. maybe maybe telling them the disease person maybe saying, Oh, that no tell, you know. Yeah, we gotta plow it, it all and, under when we get a disease. <laughs> and and what they were saying wasn't wrong. They were saying that these pathogens live on the residue, and and that's not sure. incorrect. It's just mm-hmm. that but that doesn't automatically mean you're going to be swamped with disease, you know. Right. So so even then, but we did have a, you know we we did have support. We had actually a really good just a, a, an interagency partnership where mm-hmm. you know we joined extension and NRCS we talked on a regular basis i mean a, a strategic talks on a regular yeah. basis and you know with our DNR and our yeah, back then we had a T by 2000 program uh, through the state and uh, we had a really strong partnership that focused on you know good sound technical advice and right. and uh, i think that really helped us you know yeah. Well, you go back to the early 70s, and there were three or four states where um, the ag engineers were the people pushing no-till, and the agronomy people weren't on board yet. Right? Yeah, it, it, it took a long time, especially the, you know, the, the crop specialists, you know, because they wanted to protect that crop, you know, and, and, and there's nothing about this no-till seemed like we were doing that. <laughs> and so uh, that was the hardest thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Even early on, I got an I got an article here that we did on you, I think, in 2006. And even then, this article was talking with you about you were making continuous corn work in those days. No-till continuous corn, right? And, you know, that I'll go back and I think one of the greatest things that got us over that hurdle was we had to understand how to manage nitrogen differently in, in no-till in general. And then things we learned from that was it, it transferred to, to some continuous corn. And see, we have so many really erosive soils that that extra cover was ultimately helping us, you know, helping us hold moisture. If we could manage the nitrogen, then the erosion control and the water management benefits from that extra residue actually help. And then back then, you know, that was early on in the strip till, but we had ridge till too. That ridge sure. till was a really good continuous corn system, as is, you know, strip till, you know. And, and so we we figured out that just managing that micro environment around the seed, if you can get that corn up and get it going, the rest of that residue actually could be a benefit late season to us. You know, so, but but we had to manage the early nitrogen. We, and I'll, I'll just tell you, 
Dr. Martins that was at your conferences where it really we would spend a lot of time with him. He kind of unlocked some of the secrets to nitrogen management in no-till corn, and, and especially that was especially true for no-till corn after corn. Well, you mentioned ridge-till and strip-till, and that's kind of interesting. You look back, and the ridge tillers used to get mad at the no-tillers because no-tillers had no use for ridge-till, and then strip-till came along, and it, it's kind of centered on about four or five ideas that the ridge-tillers were using, like building berms <laughs> and deep uh-huh. placement and... <laughs> So it yeah, never it, went away. It's the same same thing, and and you know the the same benefits that the ridge tillers were getting is uh, the, that's that's what the strip tillers are getting from that, and it's for those heavier soils. That's that's where we were having the most success with ridge till, and uh, and so co- consequently, that's where the strip till has probably uh, expanded and broadened the most too in those same soils. Right. So when you look back at these early days, what were the big adjustments had to be made on planters? We basically had planters that were doing conventional tillage, and we were just kind of modifying them or adjusting them. What was the big problems that had to be made? You mentioned down pressure. You know, we had all these cultures that we were hanging on there. We thought we had to do tillage in front of the unit, so we had to make them so heavy. You know, we we were adding weight, and we we were doing all these things with weight. But but at the end of the day, we finally figured out that all those wavy cultures, that was just extra surface area that was that was actually not helping us as much as we thought it was. And mm-hmm. that's extra surface area that you had extra weight that had to push it in. So once we started reducing those wavy cultures, uh, we could reduce the weight needed to get it in the ground. And then finally, of course, when the when the Martin till and the the you know the ag spectrum with their their new till come out sure. and, and started talking about that, then we we found out we don't need probably any culture at all. That double disc opener does just fine cutting through the residue. If you have some other things, some row cleaners and some things like that, helped us out. And we back then we didn't have you know the precision downforce wasn't available that that kind of. So the gauge wheels and carrying the weight of that unit out away from the seed slot, you know, what they did with those reduced inner diameter gauge tires. Sure. That was actually a big, a big breakthrough uh, early on from that, that helped us with sidewall compaction. And we manage it today with the, you know, the the precision downforce. But uh, back then that, that really helped us. That was probably the biggest, most important part of that whole system. Now, I think our latest survey shows only about 40 or 45 percent of no-tillers even got colders on their planter anymore. It, it all got down to, you know, if, we, if we'd just, if we have kept all those engineers on board with us, the physics, if we had the, <laughs> you know, the polyosis, uh, stay, we needed to give them more stage time probably, but it, it was a physics thing. You know, it's yeah. just, just sheer physics that, that that double disc opener had a nice, small sharp leading edge i still like the planters that have the narrower angle to those double disc and a, and a single disc leading edge is still a i think an advantage now that we're planting into cover crops and stuff we, we were able to lighten up the planter which ultimately allows us to plant in more conditions and get every seed placed exactly the same depth right and, we and that's yeah, that's we the ultimate goal yep we didn't <laughs> used to get that so how did you end up no. at Green? How'd you end up around Greencastle? They had an opening for an area agronomist, 
and I decided, you know, I was really liking the, the no-till and the cover crops and the agronomy side of our agency. So I uh, applied for and, and got the uh, the area agronomist job. Came over here and <laughs> first thing I did was set up, <laughs> work with a local district and set up a set up some, some no-till plots and, sure. and get a demonstration area. And, and that's when we started having our conservation expo. We would get 250 to 300 people at, at that summer field day every year. And, wow, that's and, great. Uh, and, and over here then, I, I got to cover, I think at that time, I had 16 counties that I was covering as the area agronomist. And so that started expanding. You started getting to see a lot of different farmers trying different things. And that's when you know I met Ray McCormick and people like that, that Dan DeSutter. And, you know, you start you start working with and, and meeting these really innovative farmers and and uh, you see wow we really can do a lot more now you know than, than we used to and there's a lot of different ways to to get the kind of success that we really need here and so that was that was really good and so we started having our you know our local kind of conservation roundtables and and had a pretty good group that communicated on a regular basis here west central indiana and uh, that gained and, and brought the retail along once again you know you had to immediately sure. work with the ag consultants the, the retailers the equipment dealers and because that's where the farmer's going to go first for a lot of their advice and so yep. we have to you know so that's when i met betsy bauer and, and that was years ago <laughs> We were both a lot younger then. <laughs> well, it sounds like you saw the key was not to have five different people giving out five different ideas on how to do something. That you kind of all got together and saw what worked and kind of pitched everybody on the same idea. Yeah. At that same time, we started we started putting people, putting farmers on a bus and taking them to the no-till conference and, right. and uh taking them to a lot of different summer field days across the country and, and showing them different ways and expanding. And then the beauty of that was everybody who had been to different classrooms, like at the conference on our way home, we'd have a d- big debriefing the whole way home and talk about, okay, you, did you go to that session? Did you go, you know, and yeah. uh, we'd, we'd actually have a follow-up meeting once we all got home. We even had meetings called the, the Top tips from the National No-Till Conference. <laughs> well, that's great. And everybody would everybody would share what they learned, and uh, that that ultimately helped that that continuity of message that that uh, we could uh, sort out the things that were the most relevant for us right here in this area. It really helped us. I remember talking about going to different things for a number of years. We would get some. Uh, Mennonite groups from the Dakotas to come down and you could spot them. They had on white shirts and black pants and on the mm-hmm. classrooms or the round tables. I always thought it was sad. They all went to the same one when they could have gone to 10 different ones and then I know <laughs> got different ideas and uh, talked about them on the way home. That, those, those round tables then, you know, that was, that was when people were, you know, we were advancing seems like pretty rapidly then and right. learning it was some light bulb moments and a lot of them came from just some producer would say, well, I tried this and right in those round tables and oh my goodness, that would spur hallway discussions and, and everything else. I had a guy, Oh, 10 years ago or so I answered the phone and he wanted to sign up for the conference. And this was in August. And I said to him, 
Well, I'm kind of sorry to tell you. I can't even tell you what the program is now. I'm running behind. I don't have it all done. And he says, I don't care. And I said, what do you mean you don't care? And not good for my ego, but uh, he says, I've been to four or five conferences. And number one, I know you'll have a good program. But number two, if you have a totally lousy program, I'm still coming because I have seen the value of standing out in the hall and talking to strangers. <laughs> That's exactly right. You can't go wrong. See, right. that way, <laughs> that right. takes the pressure off of you. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but no, it, we, I agree. It, I mean, the, I, I remember, and I go back to Dean Martins. I remember when he would give that one of those, some of those first presentations. My gosh, there'd be 20 of us surrounding him in the corner. Or, or when Jill Clapperton got done, we'd be right. 20 of us around yeah. <laughs> talking to her in the hallway. She wouldn't even get to get a drink. <laughs> we had a uh, we had a educator from the University of uh, Maryland talk about no till wheat one time in uh, Des Moines and he was on Saturday morning and he ended up missing his plane. There were so many people talking to him and he couldn't get away from them. You, you see that time and time again. The guys like Dr. Beck, you know, Dwayne Beck, he'd, he'd be at it. They'd follow him right into the right, right into the after hours. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Just, well, we just had a discussion last week or so on what we might do some night during the conference coming up and somebody wanted to do a movie night and we could show some short movies or something and I finally said to him I'm not so sure anybody's going to go are they going to go there or would they rather go to the bar and talk with three strangers about no-till so we'll see what we do <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of problems get solved there <laughs> so when did you start farming on your own in Greencastle getting a few acres we hadn't been here oh five or six years uh, I think it was and uh uh, maybe a little longer than that. And we started looking, you know, I started sure. looking for farmland and, and it was kind of expensive. And we finally found one that was an auction. And for whatever reason, I couldn't go to the auction. I said, well, it doesn't matter. I can't outbid those local neighbors for that <laughs> anyway. And then I found out the next day that the the, the primary piece with the house and the, the barn and, and the grain bins and stuff, uh, didn't sell at auction. And so I called the, the auctioneer. I said, what are you going to do with that? What are they going to do with that that didn't sell? So well, I guess we'll just list it. I said, well, before you list it, can you, can I come look at it? And uh, yeah. he said, well, sure. And 24 hours later, we had it bought. <laughs> so so we, uh, it's real close to town here and it was close to the office. And it was just, it's exactly what we had been looking for. And uh, so we've, we've kind of, Added to that a little bit over the years, we're still not a, a large farm by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's enough to uh, try some of the things, prove you know, uh, validate some of the some of the things that you hear about. I can I can try it at a smaller scale and see that I'm sure it works and and things like that. Still keeps keeps me in the game as far as input costs and rental rates and things like that so we have a we have a good time with it we'll come back to frank and barry in a moment but i want to take time once again to thank our sponsor martin industries for supporting our no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast series since 1991 martin industries has designed manufactured and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world 
Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. I remember back in 2008 at the National No-Tillage Conference, which was held in Cincinnati, Ohio that year, we had Mark Alley talk about uh, the need for nitrogen with long-term no-till. And he was a retired Virginia Tech University agronomist, and he had research data that indicates long-term no-tillers definitely won't need as much fertilizer as conventional tilling neighbors. He also pointed out that most growers can maximize their overall profitability by investing in starter fertilizer for quick plant growth when no-tilling corn. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Mary Fisher. How many acres are you farming today? Uh, Three hundred crop like cropland acres, mm-hmm. and then we've got some, you know, a few acres of pasture and uh, manage our woodland. You know, we and then we we both, my wife and I, both have home farms that we we kind of okay. work on and manage too, and so that keeps us uh, geographically rounded. She, her farms in uh, Western Kentucky by Sturgis, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And then uh, mine's, I still got the French Lick, you know, farm with my brother and sister. So, are you a pure no tiller on your own farm? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess you, uh, I've always said I'm, I'm a never tiller. I, I, to okay. this day, after 25 years, I've never tilled anything. <laughs> so, so I'm, I guess that would make me a never tiller. I've even been trying to reduce the disturbance of, of even the drills and the, not just the physical disturbance, but some of the chemical disturbance. So mm-hmm. using more rotations, I listened to Dr. Beck and, and I'll tell you what, crop rotation is, is the one thing. That if we convince people of the economics of, of the, of the crop rotation, we can, we can bypass an awful lot of input costs and, and, reduce a lot of the other chemical disturbance that I think is really slow in the biological development in our soils. And, and, uh, so you, you got a rotation that's more than corn and soybeans? Yeah, corn, beans, and wheat. And, okay. and I don't get wheat out there every year. I actually tried one of the best rotations, actually, I got from Dr. Beck. He said, you know, if you're if you're going to be a corn bean farmer, you got to be going corn, corn, beans, beans one time sure. at one of his conferences. Right, I remember that. And, and so... So I took one portion of my farm and I went corn, corn, beans, beans, then wheat. Uh-huh. And that was the best wheat crop I ever had for almost <laughs> zero input other than the cost of the seed. <laughs> right, right. And so so I think I think if you could play some of those cards, I think agriculture in general, I think, would benefit. Well, for too many years, people couldn't see the price of wheat being high enough to make them money. So. Yeah, and it got a little different this year, but but right. you know the even even at the lower cost of wheat, my corn yields after that wheat crop, the next two years was better. My bean yields three years after that was better, and so if I take all the economics of those better yields after the wheat, 
and the wheat I split the field half was wheat double crop beans and then the other half was wheat you know a 12 way cover crop mix and hindsight the Ultimately, the 12-way cover crop mix probably made me more money than the double crop beans, even though the double crop beans did well. And mm-hmm. if you can get 40-plus 40, 40 bushel double crop beans after a good wheat crop, it's pretty good. But the long-term effect from, from the, the cover crop, it, it, was, it, it made the wheat economic. If you put those economics back to that fact that you grew wheat in the rotation, then... And I think the economics are far better than everybody thinks they are. Probably. Well, we're we're still hung up on yields instead of economics per acre for a lot of times. And you're right. If you look at the long-term rotations, it makes a lot, a lot more sense than just looking at one year. I, I think we're in this immediate society, and, and agriculture's trapped in it, too, you know. We're living for the next moment, you know. right. And, just I, I I think of on-time delivery. You know the the ag retail folks. You know they don't store stock up on equipment equipment or materials. They you know things as needed. You know real-time delivery and all this. And and, and our thought processes in agriculture has gotten that way. We have to we have to survive the next moment, the next you know the next year. And uh, it's terribly unfortunate because had we been able to keep a long-term vision, you know, I think we would have stabilized our our ag economy a lot more. sure right you know, i think a lot of rural america would have benefited from that too it, it would go beyond just the farmers but the the local shops and business and retailers would have benefited from that more long-term approach and diversity you know too right so what are you trying new this year Oh, probably I'm building fence for one thing. <laughs> I'm going to start grazing some some more of the uh, cropland for for cover crops. So so I'm going to be building fence from that. Probably going to after wheat. You know, it's probably going to probably going to be even with the price of beans. I'll have to see. I, I, I may back out, but mostly it'll be all all cover crop mix. You know, a pretty complex mix after the wheat this time. I won't probably double crop as much. But mostly, you know, r- around here we've got uh, we we do a little bit of work with uh, you know, we're selling selling some the grass fed beef or uh, is is there's a lot of demand for that. Sure. But, uh, so we might expand that, but the the probably the more important thing is I'm you know after I retired from the USDA I'm I've uh, I'm probably probably going to think about even retiring from some of the some of the cropland acres and focus more on the cattle but uh, and that's just a you know a 300 acre farmer at some point has to decide how much they're going to invest in their equipment and all that kind of stuff and I'm kind of right. at a point where <laughs> I've either got to replace a lot of equipment uh, or hand it over I've got a young kid I'm not a young kid but uh, but a younger farmer that's really interested and does a lot of the farming the same way that I do and mm-hmm. very interested in conservation and it looks like I'm going to be able to work with him and if I can good. if I can help get an, a, another young farmer going in good conservation direction that's that's pretty rewarding in and of itself for me so right so we we keep talking sustainability and regenerative agriculture and one of the problems with grazing crops whether it's sheep or chickens or beef cattle is we tore all our fences out over the years so 
you kind of got back, got to get back into it. And you're building fence. Are, is are, is this going to catch on in the Midwest with people running more livestock or not? I think it will with a few. Uh, uh, you know, we're not going to refence the Midwest. Right. Uh, we got to be practical about that. And, and I'm not sure we want to. You're going to see some sizable operations start building fence to to mm-hmm. especially as it as it gives them an opportunity to bring some of their their kids back to the farm and it gives them an, another enterprise for for their to to you know to add family members and things like that right where they've got that situation i think you're going to see this a lot because we're starting to figure out some things both economic and you know from a soil health standpoint from an environmental standpoint we're figuring out how we can use each of these enterprises to benefit the other. And so I, I think as that knowledge grows, uh, you're going to see some pretty progressive farmers, even at, at a large scale, start building fence, you know. Uh, I see my friend Dan DeSutter, he says, he says that's all we're doing is building fence, you know, <laughs> and uh uh, you know, Rick Clark, he's doing the same thing. We got a lot of guys doing that. I don't think we'll 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 start grazing the entire corn belt. And I, I, like I said, I don't. I'm not sure we want to, but we'll probably figure out that a lot of those principles are beneficial to us. We, we ought to at least be managing the livestock that lives under the soil a little better. <laughs> Well, you mentioned Rick Clark, and there's a good example. I mean, for years, organic farmers were okay, and they were struggling like everybody else, but they didn't have huge acreages. But now you got Rick Clark and some others that are going to try organic, and they're going to try it on a big acreage. Uh, and and why not? Uh, exactly. Now that we've kind of we've we've kind of figured out, we we actually learned through a lot of our conventional, but farming but soil health we understood how to how to make soil health work well the the biggest hang-up with a lot of our organic producers was was the tillage and the the labor involved well right we're using cover crops and we're using an understanding of rotations and and using the soil microbes and we're we're using the biology to do things for us that that otherwise was going to be labor intensive and so the more we learn about that, that's going to open the door for larger operations to do quite well. And, right. and uh, they're using their knowledge they gain from no-till and understanding of no-till to, to reduce the disturbance in their in their organic systems. That's you know, it, it's how we it's how we truly get uh, to the goal of original some of the original goals of organic farming is is get the soil to function at a higher level. And when, when we get right down to it, that's what, you know, all the, all of our talk that, you know, and I've done as much of it as anybody on soil health, but ultimately we just need the soil to function at a high level. We've learned really how to do that. I mean, and we're going to continue learning even better, but this isn't a mystery anymore as much as it was. We we actually know how to manage for this. And so, you know, as we move into now, start talking about climate and carbon. Well, carbon back in the soil has always been good. That's why wouldn't we want to do that? <laughs> and if we can, if somebody's going to pay us for it, that's fine too. And I think uh, the, a lot of these innovative farmers, if they figure out that each of these practices, whether it's no-till, strip-till, 
cover crops, crop rotations. We can manage each of those practices at a higher level once we start focusing on getting more carbon. You know, these aren't, you know, a lot of people talk about no-till like it's a thing. Well, it's not a, you know, as well as I do, it's, it's not a thing. You can manage that for what, for many different purposes. It could be erosion control. It could be water savings. It could be labor savings. But if we really want it to be, uh, a, a carbon building, then, then we we would we would do no-till differently. We would do we would manage cover crops differently, and so so we now can manage within these practice names very fine-tune those to achieving the outcomes that we really need. Right, uh, and, and what we can now maybe ultimately get paid more, paid for. I, for years, thought if you had two no-tillers across the road from each other, and they were very successful, but they were doing things differently, if they switched systems, they probably neither one could make it work in the first year or two. Because <laughs> they, 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 they were sold on something they were doing that the other guy wasn't. Uh, a lot of it is, it's, it's, it's like my favorite fishing lure, you know, it's, it's all about the confidence, you know, right. two fishermen in the same boat can switch rigs and still not do it as good right. as, because they don't have the confidence in that, in that rig, you know, so. Right. <laughs> How did you go about selling uh, absentee landowners on, on no-till and cover crops? Well, I don't know that we still have uh, <laughs> to the level that we could. I, I think I think we're we're doing some great things though. We've we've got some uh uh we work with the Ag Econ folks to get some language in the in the templates that they put out for for you know, landowner tenant contracts. Sure. Uh, we're putting on a lot of workshops and, and uh I, I I really hand it to a lot of my uh colleagues that are, you know, the the lady conservationists that are putting on conservation for women landowners that, that may have been a little intimidated to come to some of our other workshops and stuff. So they're giving them some, some good workshops uh, for, for women landowners. And I, I really, I, I really think that that is going to be the key in the future because we have so much rented land and it's that immediate, like we, if I've got an annual rent that just leads to that, I have to have my, what works this year only, and I right, right. can't think long term in this annual contract. We and we've got a lot of uh, you know very innovative contracts out there. You know, I think to the Rulons. You know, I hear them talk about uh, some of their contract arrangements that they have long term contract arrangements with some of their land owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, that allows them to invest in everything from tile to cover crops and building organic matter and allows them to invest in that rented land. And uh, if we can get that word to more landowners and land managers, then uh, uh, that's going to be the real key to broad, broad adoption of these systems. I remember back in the early days of no-till, of the no-till conference, and we would give away maybe one year use of a drill or something. And one year I drew your name for a rotary harrow. And my first reaction was, darn, this is not going to a farmer, but we've already drawn the name, so we're going to have to give it the berry. 
But the but the <laughs> but the interesting thing is, I think you made better use of that Rotary Herald than if it had gone to a farmer. Yeah, that day I had to think quickly on that. I said, "Well, okay." I happened to be sitting with some of my district board members at that time, and uh, and I said, uh, I, I grabbed one of them real quick. I said, "Will the district use this and and rent uh, you know share this around the county?" And they said, "Yeah." So on my way walking up, <laughs> that was that was that was devised on the way up there. So so we yeah we. We got that in and and used that on multiple farms uh, throughout the county and wound up one of the farmers actually in the adjoining county wound up buying it. But no, that that saw a lot more acres than probably it would have if it had just went to a single farmer. (laughs) So what did the Rotary Herald do for you on Oto ground? Well, back then, you know, once again, we we didn't understand this the biology side of this, and 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 we we had. We had we were trying to make no-till work on a lot of our really heavy, wet soils that that didn't have any inherent organic matter at the surface, and so they were sealing over. And in a straight corn bean rotation, uh, the bean year there wasn't enough residue. So by spring, when you're getting ready to plant your corn, it's all sealed over, and they couldn't get it that crust, you know. Sure. And so this would just that harrow. You know, only went in a half an inch. You know, if that, and just just broke that crust, and they would run that, and then and then they would uh, be able to plant the next day. In all honesty, so that's where that worked and was used the most. And that's the farmer that wound up buying that. He had right in our area here. It's where the Wisconsin glacier stopped and the Illinoisan started. And those Illinoisan soils that are older soils, lower in organic matter. Some of them even have a fragile pan. Down, so they're 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 just a, a meaner soil to manage, and quite honestly, the it, it was the lack of organic matter at the surface, and we didn't understand we didn't have enough cover on those soils to protect them, and the cover crops have actually been a really nice complement, really helped get that surface, get some aggregate stability back at the surface. <laughs> but today, I would almost say most of those tools are being used as cover crop seeders in the fall <laughs> they make a really good cover crop seeding tool <laughs> right. so so they're still being used a lot but but uh, they're probably used as much as a as a fall tool now as as anything else strip till going to continue to grow oh i think so yeah yeah i think so the 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 need on those flatter darker soils to get in there and plant early and, and planting date you know getting across the acres early getting the corn in the ground early that that strip till just offers so much there you know it it it, it allows the farmer to manage that 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 little micro area around the seed slot around the seed like uh, you know it gets some of the same disturbance that that the mineralization the the, the soil condition is the same as they can manage for conventional tillage, but it's all right there. Mm-hmm. And so then the rest of the field, the rest of the, in between the rows gets the benefit of the residue and lets the biology kind of prosper there and, and, and build. And, and that's, that's where you get your late season benefit, you know, then from that system. So you get an early season benefit from the, the micro tillage and then, and the late season benefit from the residue. So for those heavy soils, and especially, of course, continuous corn, I think, is 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 where that system's going to continue to 
to be used for for quite a while and and even even if you you may eventually work your way out of it into more of a of a of a no-till system but uh, uh there's there's still going to be times and in, in years and and i just think that that strip till system on that heavy soil is going to be a good system and yeah. uh, and we've now figured out how to we can, we can still use cover crop get a lot of other systems to to fit right in with it you know technology and, and equipment is an understanding uh, we've got a lot of a lot of ways to integrate that right in with our other you know, standard type no-till systems Maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was down on a field day of Jim Kinsella's at Lexington, Illinois, and we were we were on a bus tour. We were going around, and Jim wasn't talking, but somebody else was, and they were talking about erosion on these fields you see out through the bus windows. And somebody said, what erosion? These fields are totally flat. What erosion? <laughs> but now I've heard you talk about uh, flat land and erosion. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, as an agency, you know, NRCS talk, had come out with this T factor, and, and we, we've somewhat convinced ourselves and convinced other people that any, as long as you're under that T value, you're okay. But sure. the, the, the reality is this flat land, what we, the kind of erosion that we get is not necessarily our traditional gully erosion and, or even sheet and reel erosion, but when those soil surface aggregates, lose their stability you know and and when the raindrops hit and it melts that soil and, and detaches those individual soil particles those soil particles move the first part of the the erosion process the detachment occurs then the transport occurs because it transports straight down and then it deposits in the pore space right below and the result is almost as as much of a of a loss of soil function as traditional erosion where it left the field sure. it left and, and and went down and closed up the pore space and caused you know denitrification and causes all kinds of functional problems to the soil on the some of the best land on the planet you know if we don't have that aggregate stability and it's not a, a type of erosion that NRCS has developed a name for, but I'm just telling you, it has the three the three steps to erosion, just like sheet and reel erosion does, and it has probably across the corn belt as much of a detriment from a yield standpoint and from an environmental standpoint. We have erosion; it's just a little different on even the flattest, blackest soil in the corn belt, and it, it can all benefit from improved soil function and soil health. Well, after your uh, area agronomist job in Greencastle, tell us how you moved on in your career. I wasn't an area agronomist very long because that was the computer. We were all getting computers back then. And back then, the the, the local area conservationist couldn't figure out who was going to train everybody on the computers. And so they, <laughs> they pointed their finger at the agronomist and decided agronomist would, would be a likely suspect to uh-huh. to train everybody on computers and all this kind of stuff. And so while I, I didn't just, I wasn't anti-computer, I was, it was taking my, taking me away from the stuff that I really love to do. Sure. Right. And so at that time I actually traded with the local district conservationist and uh, uh, he really, really liked 
doing computers more than he did working with no-till and agronomy and that kind of stuff. And I, I actually went back to being a district conservationist and they gave me three counties yeah. uh, instead of one. And, and I, I did that for a while and actually enjoyed it and, and really learned a lot from that. And then uh, at one point after a while, you know, you've done that for several years, doing a lot of no-till and a lot of talks in adjoining counties and you start doing some of those things in the state conservationist, Bob Edelman came up to me and says, you know, our no-till acres of corn has flatlined in the state and we've got to have a program to see why that is and see if we can't change that back and get, get no-till sure. growing again in the state. And so they, he said, I'm going to open up a job for, conservation tillage coordinator for the state and she would like for you to apply for that and so i did and i got that job so i did that for six uh four years and then then the state agronomist job opened up and so uh when my that that conservation tillage coordinator was soft money it was grant money actually from a 319 grant to epa so when that ran out they after two years two cycles of that the money's kind of go away and so at that same time the state agronomist job opened up so i applied for and got the state agronomist job we did that for a few years and then soil health was really kicking in and we were doing a lot of soil health training and our state resource conservationist Shannon Zizula, he was really seeing the benefits of soil health and so he says i think we're going to have to have a soil health specialist and i'm going to need you to do that <laughs> so, so that's when i became I think the first soil health specialist in the country yeah. <laughs> for NRCS. So did you end up your career in that job? No, uh, we, <laughs> we, we ultimately took a contingency, me and Ray Archuleta and, and Jane Hardesty, our state conservationist at the time, and Shannon Zizula, our state resource conservationist. We went to Washington, D.C. and did some of those soil health demonstrations that you've seen us all do. Sure. And we did that on Chief White, Chief David White's desk, essentially. And uh, uh, ultimately, we convinced him to, that we needed a, a soil health division. And, sure. uh, and they started that. And, then, and so I was got to be a part of the, the soil health division. And that's. That's what I, where I spent the last six years of, of my career was uh, working for the central region. We had pretty much from North Dakota to Kansas, all the way east when I finished up, all the way east to uh, West Virginia. Uh, I, I had all those, all, those, all those states and had three soil health specialists working with me. You talk about getting to meet with and, and hang out with and spend real quality time with some of the best farmers in the country. That was, that was a great six years of my life right there. So kind of two of the hot words right now in no-till and soil health and everything are uh, planting green and 60 inch corn rows. What do you think? Planting green is, is going to be how we do that. I think uh, long and short of it, if, especially if we're going to manage cover crops and we're going to manage no-till for improved environmental benefit, everything from more carbon in the soil to better water quality. We're gonna we're gonna have to go ahead and let those cover crops grow to acquire biomass above ground and below ground and, and get enough uh, sequester nutrients, keep them out of the water, sequester more carbon, 
uh, keep you know pull it out of the more carbon out of the air. And so, uh, if we do that, then then once again uh, today we we've got some tools available to us. The planters are very capable. The, the the other products are very capable. We can plant right into that tall green taller green material and then kill it a day later. Yeah or even as much as 21 days later and just get a much higher benefit from that system in the long term. That's going to be how we use those tools together to complement each other, to get some of the societal demands, you know, from agriculture that they're demanding from us. And, uh, but the 60 inch row, that's going to be very interesting. I really like the 60 inch using twin rows on 60 inch sure. seems to mm-hmm. be a really nice play. Uh, but that's going to be, I think more for the grazer. Right. So, so I think the real play there is if you do have grazing animals, you can get a jump start on grazing there. That that that's going to be a, a really really major gain. I think. Yeah. We had our first speaker on sixty inch rows maybe fifteen years ago or so at the Noto conference. And it was a guy from South Africa, and they were planting corn in 60-inch rows. And he would jokingly say, that's the width of the elephant. So when they run between the rows, they don't knock the corn down. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had a speaker maybe 15, 20 years ago that was doing 60-inch rows, even though he was in South Africa. I so, think I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So what's going to happen with the, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here, the ag chemical people, we're going to sell less herbicides and uh, less fertilizer with uh, regenerative ag or planting green? I think we are going to, we are going to sell less volume. We're going to have just better, more precise products for more precise uh, applications, and we're going to do a better job of deciding when and where to use what specific practice. We we just this this preventative approach is is not going to play very long. We're going to get resistance. We're going to we're you know we're we can't overuse these. These are wonderful tools, and and we should use them with with the respect that that they need in that. If we overuse them, then we'll make them unavailable, and, sure. and we have to. We can't waste that resource. And so, I think our fertility products are going to just get get far more efficient in and of themselves. Uh, so, I think everything from fertilizer to to pesticides, the volume that we use is going to be less. They're going to be safer. They're going to be safer to the environment, to the off-target. Uh, land and water resources, as well as to humans and 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 the biology in the soil, they're just going to get better. Is what I see happening, and uh, we're gonna you know we're gonna use them with you know precision ag has to go all the way. It, it has to go to those products too, and and the timing and the application and more specific purposes for each of those, and and right. so. And and there'll be trade-offs. You know, I, I talk to the ag retail industry a lot, and and farmers are going to need expertise and service, and they're going to need they're going to need more of that precision advice. And uh, 
rather than just getting all of their advice through the purchase of products, they might just have to start getting used to paying for some of that specific advice. Right. And, and, and I, I think that part of how farmers get some of their advice is going to change. And, and, and I think it needs to, and I think the ag retail industry will probably adapt as well. I mean, you're already seeing that happen a lot. You know, a lot of the large ag retail outfits are, are putting together, you know, they're, they've got their own soil health strategies and, and training their people and, and, and doing a lot of stuff just like that. So, yeah. so it's, it's gonna, it's going to change. But we're going to have to, you know, the, the equipment side's going to have to change too. It's going to continue moving toward precision and less cutting, welding, and painting of steel and right. <laughs> for for a profit and more uh, injecting of of technology in, right. into the equipment side too. Right. Hey, we've been talking for more than an hour. Uh, we'll wind this up. Anything you'd like to talk about that I missed? You know, I just I just am so excited for where agriculture can go in the next. Uh, and where it has come and, and and where it can go, you know, we're 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 charged in agriculture with a huge amount of of natural resources for the country, and and the public depends on us for providing that food. And you know, we we today we we can we we have that knowledge and and we have that ability, and and uh, you know, I, I like the direction towards soil health and and improving soil function, but, but it's going to be good for the farmers. It's going to be good for, for the environment. And it's going to be good for the end consumer right. along the way. And I'm just really, I'm really excited uh, to, to still be, I'm still going to try to play a part in some of that. You know, I, I still enjoy it and still enjoy getting out and talking to some of the best farmers in the country. And I'm always amazed at what they're thinking about and what, what's on their agenda to try next well that's like me i've been i've done stories on farmers in all 50 states i don't think i've ever been on a farm that i didn't learn something i've been on a few farms i didn't learn a lot but on most of the time learn something and sometimes you just see things that are going to be great turn into something and once in a while you see something that it's not working at all but i've always farmers have always shared their ideas with us and it's always been great to get out there thank you very much all right. Well, thanks a bunch, Frank. Okay. You take you, care, right? You, you've done a real lot to help everything grow in soil health and no-till and strip-till and cover crops over the years. So congratulations on a great con- career and keep it going. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. We've had some questions uh, recently from uh, readers or comments that uh, maybe with the price of wheat going up, it's got a place back in uh, corn and soybean rotations, or, you know, some people are using it as a cover crop too. And then this was back in 1980, Lee Wayne and Alan Bartell were no-tilling wheat that they would tend to use as a cover crop ahead of full season no-tilled soybeans the following spring. The two brothers live in Beeler, Kansas, and they had the option of cutting the wheat for grain or leaving it as a cover crop. 
And Lewain told me, we wait until the wheat heads out around the end of May. Then we kill it back with the same herbicide tank mix we use for double crop beans before no-tilling our full season beans. But if they want, they can leave it as a cover crop or take the wheat off as a cash crop before they double crop. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Barry Fisher for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lasseter and our entire staff here at Mitchell Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>